very thankful and excited to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. What a great day it's been so far. We have much more to look forward to in the taking of the Lord's Supper, welcoming in new members, and our fellowship meal together, which as a native Texan, that is very exciting to me. So, if you were to open your Bibles to the first letter of Peter, first letter of Peter, chapter 2, And I will read for us verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we are eager to know you. Help us understand that you give us words like this to not only tell us what you have done, but why you have done it. Give us clarity. Give us conviction. Give us uh, even zeal as we seek to know and to rejoice in what you have done and your motive in it all. I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our unity and our trust in you through these moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This week, I want to tell you some of what the plan is for this text. This is an amazing text. I've been thinking about this set of verses for a long time and been eager to preach them, and to talk about them, and to do more in light of them, which will be more evident as the days go on. The plan this week, especially in light of it being Celebration Sunday, is to simply show you reasons for rejoicing from this text. I want to remind you, even though we've discussed a little bit of it so far, the rationale behind the Celebration Sunday. Of course, it's easier logistically to just compile some of these additional elements onto one day. But one of the reasons it's important for us as the people of God to consecrate a day, in addition to the days that we already consecrate, to focus on celebrating, focus on rejoicing, is because joy in the Lord, in fact, should be the number one marker of the people of God. What designates us as the true people of God? Certainly our holiness, certainly our trust, but happiness in that holiness, happiness in that trust. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And sometimes, frankly, brothers and sisters, it's just so easy to forget to be happy for the right reasons. You can be happy for all sorts of things, and I certainly do. It's getting springtime, which means it is time to start smoking meats, And I can get very happy about that. You will all be blessed by that, hopefully soon. Amen. (laughs) However, when it comes to Jesus and the gospel and the hope that we await for his return, sometimes it can just become dreary or rote. And, And I think we sense the gravity of it sometimes, even in an appropriate way, and we just forget to be glad. But he has made us glad. This is part of the point. What proves to the world, in some sense, that we are, in fact, the true people of God is that we are happy to be the people of God. 
We have joy in the Lord. And so we, we set aside a day. Now, it used to be just once a quarter. Now it's once a month where we, regardless of how we feel coming to church, we say we are going to rejoice because we are the people of God and He has done all these things for us that we may be glad in Him. This is your strength, brother and sister. Draw from it. Draw from the hope and the power and, and, and the energy that comes from rejoicing in the Lord, regardless of what is happening in your life. And I know that many of you are dealing with really painful, hurtful things. It is yet our hope that God will come and set things right. And He will vindicate the righteous and bring recompense on the wicked. And we will be with Him forever and we can rejoice. We can have joy. So, because we often forget and because it is needful for us to rejoice in the Lord, uh, consider it was even the flavor of Jesus' ministry. This was one of the reasons they critiqued Him and didn't like Him because He was so happy all the time, hanging out with with tax collectors and sinners, eating and drinking, and they they didn't like that about Him. If you're holy, you've got to be serious and sad and somber all the time. That's not the case. So, from this text, the verses that we just read together, I want to give you eight reasons for rejoicing that are, I believe, directly drawn from the text. Many of them will be very obvious. So my intention is to explain each of these phrases. I've broken the text down into eight different phrases or headings, and then I'm going to tell you why these become for us, the people of God, major pillars of our joy. Next week... We're going to be in this text for two weeks. Next week, we will talk about practical application of this text. So we'll be in the same two verses, and I'm going to apply. I'm claiming that these verses have quite a lot to do with how the church does things. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that have scarcely little to do with how a church functions, like a genealogy. There's not much that that does for the everyday operations of a church, like that so-and-so begat so-and-so. That doesn't really change what our service should look like. But these verses do, in a very big way, set the trajectory, set the values, and set the purpose for why we even gather in the first place. So, that's next week. It'll be exhortation, it will be pleading, and even in some cases, rebuke. But now, for this week, the goal is to just focus on the wonder and the encouragement of this text. And what a text it is. We come to the first statement, but you, but you. It it carries the sense of you, however, so so it's indicating a, a deep and strong contrast. A contrast with what? Well, if you look up just a few verses, it says at the end of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That is a depressing outlook for those who do not know God and those who have rejected Jesus Christ and rejected Him as Messiah. So which are you? It would be unsafe to assume that just because the Bible says they and you, two designations that you can find as you read the Bible, like they and them and then us and we, or you, it'd be unsafe to just assume because the Bible speaks that way that you are in the you that you are in the us, and that those people out there, those are the them. I know that these are not grammatically correct statements. The central issue is, of course, if you stumble on the stumbling stone. 
the cornerstone, the rock of offense. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Is He an offense to you? Are His claims uh, foolish? Do they summon more out of you than you're willing to give? He claims to be Lord of your life, and if you trust Him, you gain all things, and if you do not trust Him, you lose everything. Is that a stumbling stone for you? That is the central issue that either determines whether or not you are in the but you, or if you are in the they who stumble and are destined indeed to do so. So the pivot then for Peter in this passage from the end of verse 8 to the beginning of verse 9 is to massive encouragement. He's exhorting and encouraging his people, you're not this. Because you have placed your faith in Jesus, you then move out of this camp, this massive condemnation, as Augustine called it, and now are into something else. You're different. But you, you, however... Before we consider what what it is that God has done to do this, we should just pause and rejoice, number one, because of His own will, God has decided that condemnation and judgment would not be the only thing. And that judgment and hell and punishment would not be the only path. It would not be the final word. Death would not have the last say. He has so acted and so worked and moved heaven and earth at great cost to himself to save, proving forever the glory of his his unimaginably great grace and his kindness and his mercy. So rejoice. God has made it so that you and I are no longer under wrath. But you. But you are a chosen race. This is a, a reference to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 through 7. If you want to turn there, much of this passage depends on that. There are a few other Old Testament passages. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 43, verses 4 and 6, I'll read there. Verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's purpose in salvation is to create for himself a people. The main encouragement, the contrast to this depressing outlook of those that stumble over the stumbling stone is the encouragement of being chosen. This is how Peter shares this doctrine. Beginning in chapter 1 and all throughout his book, the idea of God's purpose, God's choosing, God's action to create a people is the ground for encouragement. And note as well, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, that this statement is unnecessary if he's been talking to Jews the entire time. For you to say to a Jew, you are a chosen race, would be redundant. The amazing encouragement of this passage is indeed that he is speaking to a mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Jesus. And he says, of that group, you 
are a chosen race. That, to put it lightly, is groundbreaking and revolutionary. Those who trust in Jesus are, in fact, the new chosen race. And in some sense, we're always whoever shared the faith of Abraham. We'll get to that in a little bit. But let's focus a little bit on this word race. Man, if there was ever a more charged word in a vocabulary of any people group. Please don't import all that our culture says about this word race into this biblical word. Uh, That's not the sense that it carries. The, The sense it carries is more like the word family in a broad sense, or kindred, even tribe. That's the sense that this carries. So really, in biblical terminology and thought, which is vastly different from our culture's terminology and thought, there was only ever one original race. And then God selected one family, the descendants of Abraham, as the chosen race. And now Peter audaciously and majestically applies that terminology to those who believe in Jesus. So are there three races in God's disposition towards the world, or are there two? There are two and only two. Think of it this way. It is number one, those outside, those who hate God, and two, those who are the chosen race, the real heirs of the promise those who are descendants of Abraham according to faith. Or think of it this way. There's really only two races that matter. Those in Adam, under the power of Satan. Jesus even says to certain Jews, you are from your father, the devil. The Jews who had Abraham as their father, but because they rejected the Messiah, because they persisted in unbelief, They were of the accursed race, still in Adam. And the other race in biblical terminology is those who are in Christ, the true offspring of Abraham, eldest brother, with the Father over us all. So those who are God's children and those who are not God's children. Here's what Karen Jobes, a commentator on 1 Peter, says. Peter here makes the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, or whatever, though from many races, constitute a new race of those who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is the foundational cure for the evils of racism in human society. This is the hope. He unites things that are desperate and divided and even warring with each other. Consider being a Jew who came to faith in Jesus, calling a Gentile your brother and sister. This is the radical shift that occurs through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were formerly enemies and in hostility towards each other and didn't even have dealings with each other are now made into one family, the chosen race. The world is, if you will let me borrow some terminology, both a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God, and at the same time, a tale of two families, two tribes, the family of God and the family of the enemy. So Peter encourages his hearers by designating them as the true family of God, the chosen race, the elect tribe. 
And this is amazing because all of those labels, as are said, used to only apply to ethnic Israel. So you are this. You are this, this elect, this chosen race brought together from all tribes and districts of the world into one new family. Versus what? So we are this now versus what? Well, the immediate context demands we say those that are destined to stumble over the stumbling stone. You could say that. Remember, those who are offended as they face the person and claims of Jesus, that is what is now the characteristic trait of those who are outside the family of God. It all comes down to that. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your heritage is, what your level of theological understanding is. It all comes down to what you do with Jesus. And through Christ, you are in God's chosen tribe, His elect race. Notice as well that the choosing is the ground of belief. Why are we different than those who stumble over the stumbling stone? Are we better people? Are we wiser than them? Did we get it together and reason it out and all of a sudden cause ourselves to be in God's chosen race? No, His choosing, His election is the ground of our being in this thing. The point is we can take no credit for our salvation at any stage. And therefore, it can be an encouragement because it is all from God. He has done it. He has begun it. And He will surely bring it to fruition. And remember the context of all of 1 Peter, really. We can't lose the motif of sojourn and exile. Okay, we're called, in, in the first chapter, we're called elect exiles, chosen exiles. When you hear the word exile, what typically comes to mind? It would be to be cast out of something, to be, to be expelled, to be cast away from the greater portion of society. And that indeed happened, that was happening in this time, no matter when you date this, um, the world was in the process of rejecting Christians. There was this new group, this new religious sect, and they didn't like it for many reasons. Emperor Claudius, which I think it's during his reign that we can most safely date this work, he forcibly removed people from more established areas, even Rome itself, and sent them to far-flung colonies of his empire. So imagine that. You're a Christian living in Rome at some relative level of ease and success, and because you're a Christian, the emperor picks you up and takes you across the known world and sets you down in North Asia Minor. We freak out about masks and vax mandates. Forcibly removed from your home just because you're a Christian. And so, in the terminology of the day, they are exiles. They are the undesirables. But, understand the reason Peter is talking about God's choosing is to say that God's activity is in fact what has created the world's rejection. You see, it is God's choosing that has not It is not because the world rejects us and is evil, though that's true, but the reason it rejects us and hates us is because of what God has done. God started this fight, is the idea. 
God, our Heavenly Father, started the conflict between us and the world and began this tension by forcibly removing us from the family or tribe of Satan. Our will had gotten us into that horrible circumstance. And God's power and God's choosing has caused us to be something else. And that is why the world rejects us. It is not because you have chosen on your own, like, well, I guess I'll associate with Christianity, and then the world rises against you. It's because God has taken you out of that mass of condemnation and called you to be something else. And that is why the world rejects the claims of Christ and why it hates us, because it hated Him first. Therefore, we can rejoice because, number two, God has chosen us to be in His family. The most important thing about us then is not the color of our skin or our family heritage or if we're a native Idahoan or a Californian or even a native Texan. The most important thing about us is that we are no longer part of the accursed race of Adam and of Satan, but rather we belong to the family of God and older brother Jesus. This is the Lord's doing and it ought to be marvelous in our eyes. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The other Old Testament passage that Peter draws on is is Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, if you want to go there. It's right before God gives the people the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's amazing. Not only are we called out of the world to be something distinct, separated from the mass of condemnation and the family of Adam, the family of Satan, but we are also designated as royal priests. While this is the only passage, the one that, sh- that, is, that is our text today, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, is the only passage in the New Testament, as far as I can find, that directly connects the ideas of priesthood and royalty, it nonetheless makes sense. If we are, by virtue of adoption into God's family, part of the royal family, And if we are, by virtue of consecration to the service of God, in some sense priests, then it makes sense to combine the ideas of royalty and priesthood. But imagining an entity that is both royal and priestly is as difficult as it is wonderful. Nevertheless, this is what you are, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. You are part of a royal priesthood. We discussed part of this several weeks ago. The last time I preached from 1 Peter, we saw that the members of the family of God are both priests and stones. You can see this in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. As you come to Him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter continues to build on this idea of priesthood, and then he slaps this term royal onto it. He's already said holy, and now he says royal. Why modify it? Why apply something else? So back in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we already read it. He said, a kingdom of priests. The nuances are slightly different, but this is important. I really want you to see this. A kingdom of priests could mean something like a large group of people who are designated together as a kingdom, and all of them, as citizens of that kingdom, serve as priests. Royal priesthood implies that all of those who serve in the priesthood carry with them royal attributes, that they are in fact part of the royal family, and in that designation serve as priests. The nuances are slight. The Hebrew text is kingdom. If you go to, if you go to the Misoretic text, the, thing, the stuff they found in the Dead Sea, it says kingdom. But the Greek Old Testament, which Peter would have depended on, says this word royal. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, royal applies too, because Peter uses that and applies it squarely to us as well. It's fascinating. Hopefully that didn't just fly over your head. But this, the, these are the subtle nuances that gain us more and more encouragement. It's being modified for your benefit. A kingdom of priests makes sense. It makes sense that the nation of Israel, all of them in their capacities as citizens and members of that national entity, would represent God to the world. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to live in a way that reflected God's holiness and His love and compel the nations by their witness as neighbors to them that they were in fact the kingdom of God, the people of God. But a royal priesthood is problematic in view of the Old Testament because priesthood belongs to the tribe of Levi and the scepter, royalty, belonged to the tribe of Judah. Royalty and priesthood then in the understanding and framework of the Old Testament were things that really didn't mix. Remember what happened in the case of Samuel when Saul, the king, tried to offer sacrifices. Didn't go so well. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that term royal and applies it to you and me. Those of you who were here when we were preaching through the book of Hebrews hopefully remember some of the things we said about the priest Melchizedek. The first place in the Bible where any word having to do with royalty or kingship and any word having to do with priesthood is, in fact, Genesis 14, 18. You don't have to turn there. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So here is this figure before the birth of Isaac and Jacob before Mount Sinai, who is both king and priest and bringing bread and wine as that king priest to the people of God. You see that even in the Lord's Supper, it might allude back even before the Passover to this priest-king figure who brings out bread and wine to the people of God 
of his own self. Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. The lines of illusion are maybe deeper than we might imagine. So some of that is review. If you want to read about it, go read Genesis 14, read Psalm 110, and read all of Hebrews. But for now, I want you to see that this picture is innovative and amazing, and it gives us encouragement, a royal priesthood. Christ Jesus is the King who is also priest forever. And we are His younger royal brothers and sisters serving in the family business of priesthood forever. That's what you are, brothers and sisters. Therefore, we can rejoice, number three, because we have been called, we have been summoned, and we have been brought near and qualified to serve the Most High God alongside older brother Jesus. We have a job to do. Salvation isn't just about escaping hell. You've been consecrated to the service of God forever. And this is your job. It's not a menial or mundane assignment like being a janitor in heaven one day. Though I'd take that over the alternative. The point is, you are right there alongside Jesus ministering to the one true God forever. It is a job description worthy of Jesus Himself and it's been given to you. You are a royal priesthood. A people for His own possession as well. He says a holy nation. We won't spend a whole lot of time on that. We'll address this next week in our talking about proclaiming the excellencies, how our holiness proclaims God's excellencies. But our holiness also marks us as the people of God as well. We are consecrated in our behavior to be a nation that is distinct from the rest of the world. Your holiness isn't about earning you brownie points with God. Your holiness proclaims something. So next week we'll drill down on holy nation and then the purpose statements that we get to in just a second. So he says, a people for his own possession. Peter continues to apply the stunning realities of Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 to the new covenant community, which is amazing in and of itself. He also alludes to quite a bit of other Old Testament passages, this idea of a people for God's own possession. Let's let's think about this just for a minute. We should ponder this. A people for his own possession. A holy nation that is also a people for his own possession. Does not God own everything by right of creation? Is not God perfectly sufficient in himself, not needing anything in order to have fullness of joy? So why does he need a treasured possession? What's that about? What's this business about creating us, those who trust in Christ, to be that treasured possession? As we often do when we pause and step down from our frantic pursuit of whatever is next, we find ourselves coming up against the very mystery of God when we ask questions like this. Why does God do what he does? 
No, he does not need us. He is not and was not lonely. It is not as if the fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity was lacking in any way. And we cannot say that it is all explained by his love because that would then make the creation and his choosing us obligatory on his part. And we want to avoid that. We must avoid that. The deeper question is this. Why did he choose to set his love on us to be a people for his own possession when he does not need or lack anything and already owns everything? You just step back and say, it's a mystery. But are we given more? Can we answer it more definitively? I would give you a very simple answer to this question. He deserves it. He deserves it. As the author of Hebrews says, it was fitting. This is why he has created a people for his own possession. The Lord is such a being, such a God, so glorious in majesty and power and might that it is fitting, it is appropriate for him to have such a people as his own who belong to him as his treasured possession. Think of it this way. A king's crown does not make him a king. But a truly great king deserves a great crown. A song of triumph does not make a general victorious, but a general, after winning a great victory, deserves many songs of triumph. A romance is not made valid or more real by poems being written about, about it, but a truly great romance deserves many poems to be written about it. And the one true God does not lack or need anything, but since He is as glorious and grand as He is, He deserves a people to be His treasured possession forever who will praise Him forever. That's the point. Do you sense the depth and gravity of the glory of God? In eternity past, when there was nothing but Father, Son, and Spirit, with no lack and no want of anything, yet because of how glorious and wonderful that God is, it demanded that a universe, yes, even a universe as large as ours, to be created and to proclaim the glory of God nonstop from galaxy to galaxy spanning all space and time. The vacuum of space is nothing compared to the vacuum that was there by the brute existence of God's glory. It demanded that something come into existence to praise Him for who He was and is and will be. That vacuum had to be filled with praise. And not just praise in general, but joyful praise. You see, that these all connect that the joy of God's people in Him is what the universe was created for. And you and me, brothers and sisters, do you sense this? We have been called out, even out of mundane creation, to praise God in a way that 
the galaxies will never be able to do. The sun, moon, and stars will never be able to do. Even as we sing, we want all creatures of our God and King to praise Him. We are eager for everything that has breath to praise Him, but you and I have even more reason and even more power to praise Him. And all this has happened because He deserves it. Such a being is there whose sheer glory demanded that the universe be created. You wake up to Him every day. He thinks more about you than you think about Him even in your best moments of devotion. He ponders your steps and your thoughts more intensely than you have ever pondered or thought about anything. He knows you, and He is here. Therefore, we can rejoice because, number four, Christ, through mere faith in the Lord Jesus, has made us into the treasured possession of God Most High. You are loved and treasured by the one true God more than you can possibly imagine. His favor and His love that He has placed on you and me is what makes us able to do what comes next. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. We could rephrase it a little bit because I'm pausing in the middle of the sentence. That you may proclaim His excellencies. This is an allusion perhaps to Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21, if you want to turn there, just to see the rootedness of Peter's theology. Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, to the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. When you read the Bible, you should be on the outlook for purpose statements. Purpose statements weave together actions on the one hand and why they happened on the other. And especially when purpose statements speak about God, they become even more important. And when these same purpose statements summarize not just something that God does, but a long list of God's activity, they become even more important still. And this is such a text that you have in front of you in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Read it again. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we will spend the majority of time next week, like I already said, drilling down on that purpose statement, looking at it from all different sorts of angles, asking questions, drawing conclusions about how our lives ought to be and how we ought to be as a church. But for now, the purpose is to explain it and rejoice in it. Don't be confused when you see the word may or might in the Bible. The grammar indicates that the action should be thought of not as a possible result, but should be viewed as the definite outcome that will happen 
as a result of another stated action. So when you read, proclaim the excellencies of him, this is what God has determined to do in saving you, that you would become part of the people that proclaims his excellencies. How do you feel about that? Maybe an odd question in a sermon. But is your will at odds with that? The reason you exist, the reason you are saved, is that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. What does your life say about that? Are you interested in other things? Young people, when you hear me explain that that is the reason God has created you and saved you, is your response, meh? If so, whether old or young, if our response is a lack of excitement, a lack of will to be applied to this activity to proclaim the excellencies of God, then you are at odds. You're at odds with and unimpressed with God's determined will for your life. Doesn't matter what career path you choose or how much you give your life over to ministry or service. If you don't want your life to be about proclaiming the excellencies of God's glory, you are at odds with Him. But I'm getting ahead of myself to next week. This is why we are saved. This is why we are a treasured possessions. It's, it's not just to sit in a glass case in heaven as a trophy of God's grace. It is that you would be a talking trophy, a proclaiming trophy, a singing trophy to, to exclaim, to exult in the glories, the excellencies of God. It is fitting that God should have such a people to do so. With this word proclaim, it's the same root word that we find for angels, actually. The word angel is a, is a sent messenger, so it's, it's the out-proclaiming. And it occurs twice in this specific form in the Greek Old Testament, in the Psalms. I'll read them for you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So the psalmist is thanking God for all he's done, sparing him in the way that he has, so that he may proclaim all of God's works. Psalm 79, verse 13, But we, your people, the sheep of your pastor, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is the point. To whom are we to proclaim? The verse leaves it unspecified. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have to draw from the rest of Scripture to answer that question. And we'll have to drill down on more of that next week because I know we're running short on time. But we're to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world, even to the angels, to one another, and back to God himself. All four are appropriate answers biblically. But more on that next week. What are the excellencies, though? Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. There's an unending list of God's excellencies. But the gospel, God's redeeming work, summarized in the next three clauses that we see, form for us the foreground of what His excellencies are. All 
All things about God, everything about Him is excellent. But there are some things about God that God Himself desires to be front and center in our proclaiming of His excellencies. You can't just spin the roulette wheel and pick the attribute of God that you want to proclaim the excellencies of. He has ordained that all of this, His redeeming us, would be to the praise of His glorious grace, as seen in the Gospel. Some of us may, unfortunately, gravitate towards God's wrath and vengeance and retribution. And those are all important excellencies of God. But those are not to be the foreground in your exclamation, your proclamation of His excellencies. Why? For one simple reason. You must not be glad or gleeful or joyful when God acts in vengeance and retribution and judgment. Why? Because He's not glad or rejoicing or gleeful in His working of vengeance, judgment, and retribution. Do you love God's harshness and strange work of judgment more than He does? It's a real danger. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves into next week. The contrast is important. The ground of our rejoicing is that into a situation where we deserved nothing but judgment and vengeance and retribution because we were wicked, because we had rejected God, because we had chosen to belong to the family of Satan under Adam's curse, yet God, in the midst of that situation, drew us out of it. That is the basis of these statements that he gives. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's telling us all the reasons why we will now be able to proclaim his excellencies. Therefore, we can rejoice because, number five, it is our portion to shout for joy and rejoice in great gladness because God has visited us in our affliction and our rebellion, and He did the amazing and scandalous thing and pardoned us. The Gospel, as we will see summarized in the next three clauses, is the reason we can praise Him and the biggest thing we ought to praise Him for. So, what are the praiseworthy things that should form the foreground of our proclamation of His excellencies? That you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We'll go through these quickly. Keeping with Peter's pattern of using Old Testament passages to support his image here, it's a question of where where is he drawing this picture from? The darkness to light analogy. And this is actually frequent through the Old Testament. You run into it all the time. But in Isaiah chapter 42, so close to where we've already read, if you want to go there, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Well, it's as if Peter was studying Isaiah while he wrote 1 Peter. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes 
that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the promise of God sending His servant to accomplish this for us. This is one of the three ways that Peter summarizes what actually happens as a result of God's saving work. We are in prison. We are in the dungeon. We are doomed to die. We are under the, under the enemy's domain, accursed, destitute, and then light. God awakens you by the power of the Holy Spirit and calls you out of it. He draws you up out of the pit and makes you to stand as a full citizen of His royal priesthood. His kingdom of light. This is praiseworthy. In view of this, we can shout for joy and clap our hands. We can feast and we can celebrate because God has done this. He deserves to be known as the one who reaches down into the most desperate of situations and draws us up to light and life in Him. Therefore, we can rejoice, number six, because He has indeed come to us and called us out of darkness. A darkness of our own making. There is no dark dungeon you have gotten yourself to. No prison of sin that you have locked yourself away in that the Lord cannot call you out. This is truly good news. He did not leave us as we deserved to be in outer darkness and sin and deception. He called us and has drawn us out of that darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. For this clause and the next, the reference is clearly Hosea 2, verses 20 through 23, if you want to turn there. Hosea chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is right in line with exactly how Peter's fellow apostle Paul sees this passage. In that most astounding chapter of Romans 9, Paul takes this text and applies it to the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. This community of people from all walks of life, all different religious, ethnic, social, and economic backgrounds, once not a people. There are no distinguishing marks. Nothing that unifies them together. Nothing that gives them an identity, a shared center point. That group that was not a people have now been made into God's people. The lines of the borders of the kingdom of God now cut even between family members. Instead of a geographic outline of a place, it is now 
between human hearts, those who love God and those who do not. It is a unifying work. It is ta- God's work of creating this people has taken all of these ill-fitting components together and called them out of darkness, given them new names and a singular purpose and called us together God's people. Therefore, we can rejoice because, number seven, God has taken all of us from our various backgrounds and united us to Himself as His people. It is not then restricted to Jews only. There is only ever one people of God, and by His mercy, we are a part of it. This is the mystery hidden for ages, and we can rejoice because He has brought us in. We have been grafted in. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, further application of the text from Hebrews that we just read. Uh, uh, Hosea, rather, that we just read. How is this different? Is he just repeating himself? Is this just a different way of saying the same thing? Remember, these are the excellencies that we are to proclaim. What is the content of our proclamation to the world of how good God is? Well, he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. And once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. There is so much to say about mercy and the centrality of mercy and what it seems that God is most eager to prove about himself to us. But let's consider it from a broad and cosmic perspective It is wondrously God's design that His treasured possession should be a group of people who needed and still need mercy. That's His purpose. That's crazy and stunning and amazing. Consider what that means. It is often said that the cross was plan A. That God's point was to exalt Christ to be preeminent before the creation of the world. That was His plan. But that implies that God sought to create a situation where mercy would be needed. With all the uncomfortable implications that that might be turning in your mind right now. Yes, it is as startling as it sounds. And just as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty two, 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The point was to get us to a place where he could prove just how merciful he is. So don't cower away from him, sinner, brother or sister in Christ, non-believer. You've got a long ledger of sin. The God's purpose is to prove to you just how merciful he is. And in some sense, all do receive mercy. I mean, we've got a coalesce these ideas together. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's there's a sense in which everyone in the world, everywhere receives God's mercy because everything comes from Him as a good gift. He gives to all life and breath and everything. But there is a special sense in which those who receive pardon through the death of Jesus, through faith in Him, that we receive special mercy. It is that special sense that Peter means in 1 Peter here. Not receiving mercy to now receiving mercy. 
This is, as we will talk about it next week and, and as we discuss with several different things, this is the difference between God's general mercy and His special mercy. His general mercy is extended to everyone, everywhere. You woke up this morning. You're drawing breath. You're receiving mercy from God because what you deserve is nothing but condemnation and judgment. So it's available to everyone. He is kind to all. But there is a special mercy that is only available in Christ. There is no other name given under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. Only available through Jesus. And my appeal to you, friends, is that you need God's mercy in ways we can barely even imagine. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His broken body and shed blood for you. There is still yet time to find mercy. The door of the ark is yet open. All these glories, all of these grand privileges, all these reasons for rejoicing can be yours today through mere trust in the Son of God. Entrust yourself over to Him. And, O oh believer, we can rejoice because, number eight, we who needed mercy, who had no rightful claim on God's mercy or grace, have indeed received the mercy of God abundantly. For us, we have, by His grace through faith, begun to learn what this means, that He desires mercy and not sacrifice. For He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Praise be to God. Rejoice, O fellow sinner. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Father, You are good and You do good all the time. We thank You for Your great grace, Your mercy, for having done all these things. We pray that as we continue with song and receiving the Lord's Supper, that You would consecrate our fellowship still. In Jesus' name, Amen.